All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 25. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 25. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And so much of the time, Lord, I know we come upon passages like this that maybe are curious to us. We don't understand why... You've included this, but Lord, we pray that our curiosity would give way to faith and trust and dependency, that we would receive your word, that we would understand it and respond to it in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you know me well, you know that I love movies. I'm a movie guy. Uh, don't really have hobbies. Uh, some of you think cigars are my hobby. That's not a hobby, it's a life. But my hobby if anything, it's probably, it's, it's probably movies. I really enjoy movies, have all my life. And of my top three movies, one of my favorite all-time movies is an M. Night Shyamalan film called Unbreakable. Who has seen Unbreakable? Raise your hand if you've seen Unbreakable. All right, more here. Okay. So I know he's hit or miss with his movies, right? This is a hit. And um, I don't want to spoil it in case you haven't seen it, but there's a line by Elijah Price at the end of the movie, Elijah Price is a character played by Sam Jackson. By the way, it's a Sam Jackson movie in which he doesn't really curse, so it's almost a miracle uh, movie. Anyways, Elijah Price in this movie, at the end, he says, do you know what the scariest thing is? To not know your place in this world. To not understand, to not know why you're here. And it's that question that has been driving him and his character throughout the whole movie. And I love that line because that's really what the whole movie is about. What is my purpose? Why am I here? Like that is the question that every human being asks. And if they aren't asking it, they feel the weight of it in their hearts. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Because what is something if it doesn't have a purpose? What is its use if it has no purpose? It is useless. Purpose matters. And what we do is we come up with purposes in our lives that are temporal, right? It doesn't mean that they're bad. It, they can be very good. We can have many purposes in our life that are good, but we need the overarching ultimate purpose of our lives to be clarified that transcend circumstances so that when, if you say like, oh, well, my purpose is to be a father. You say, oh, my purpose is to be a father. But what if you wind up with the inability to have children of your own, and do you no longer have a purpose? Or, or, or what happens if you say, like, well, my purpose is to be a spouse, and, and you don't get married, or you lose your spouse? Like, do you, what's your purpose? 
We need the true purpose, not subjective, objective, and we find that in scripture. We even find it in this passage. We find it outside of ourselves. We find it in God. And this is the principle I want you to hold on to. This summarizes everything that I want to say today. It is this, all people are created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you're Presbyterian or if you're a theologian, if you've been in church a long time, those words are gonna sound very familiar. I didn't come up with them. To glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we'll talk about where that comes from in a little bit. But this is the principle. All people, all people are created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So we're gonna look at this passage in two sections. We're gonna look at the account itself. It's a narrative, so we just wanna talk through the passage. What's happening? Who are these people? And then I wanna talk about the doctrine and the duty that come out of this passage. So first of all, in verse 20, you'll notice as we're reading this, it, it sort of shifts, right? We've been following the apostles and, uh, and Peter and all this stuff that's been going on. And all of a sudden, it's shifting back to Herod, right? Not a friend of the church. And we start to get what looks like secular history here. It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. All right, so who is Herod? If you weren't here, we've already talked through this, but we're talking about uh, King Herod Agrippa I. And so he's in charge over the region right now. Uh, Rome occupies it all, controls it, but the Jews live you know, throughout, throughout the region. And so he has not been a friend to the church. The Jewish constituency were frustrated by the church, this emerging church, which looked to them like a Jewish sect that was causing problems. And so uh, when he began to round up and arrest these Christians for disturbing the peace, essentially, he saw that it really pleased the Jewish constituency, right, that were underneath him. And he saw that and he wanted to curry favor with them. So he's like, all right, let's go after it. So he arrested Peter. So Herod Agrippa was a persecutor of the church, not a friend. And now we're reading about him. He's, he's, he's gone down to Caesarea at this point, and uh, he's experiencing political conflict. Not uncommon, right? Political conflict. There are these rival cities from Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon. And it doesn't tell us what the conflict was because it doesn't matter. It's not a part of the story that we need to worry about. But there is conflict. There's some kind of annoyance, frustration, battle, heat, beef between these groups from Caesarea and Tyre and Sidon. But Tyre and Sidon are dependent upon Caesarea for food. They need their resources. They need help to survive, to thrive, to be a healthy functioning city or to be cities. And so they say like, listen, we got we to squash this somehow. Let's go and talk to Herod and try and squash this and try to make peace so that we can all get along and just live and be happy. And so uh, they send representatives over there to talk to him. Of course, they talk to a guy named Blastus which has the most rock and roll name of all time, Blastus. Oh, my goodness. I'm glad I didn't see that before we had our kids because I might have been arguing for a Blastus instead of a Killian. Anywho, Blastus is, it's not, he's not a great character, but the name. Anyway, so they talk to Blastus. Blastus is like the chief officer, like the, like the you know, he, he runs the show. He, he, he's Herod's right-hand man, right? The chief of staff, something like that. So they, they talk to Blastus and they wanna, they wanna try and just, you know, can we, can we squash this? Can we somehow make this right? They, they're making the effort to reach out and establish peace. All right, why are we talking about this? Like, who cares? Who cares about Blastus besides his name? Who, 
Heavy metal band name too, Blastus. Anyways, who cares about, Bla- who, like why does this matter to the church? We're suddenly deviating and we're focusing on them. And it's a good question to ask because the point of it all is about to unfold. This is leading somewhere. But even before we get to where it's leading, know this, that all of history is God's history. Everything that happens in the created order happens according to God's providential work or plan. God is involved in the details. There is nothing that's happening that he is not somehow connected to or a part of. So where is this heading? Well, the point is this. In verses 21 through 23, we see it pretty clearly. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took a seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. So that's where it's going. Herod exalted himself And in exalting himself and casting off the God that had revealed himself to Herod through a number of witnesses, he is judged. Herod gives a speech dressed in his fine robe. It's interesting, if you uh, read Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, and I didn't read a bunch of Josephus. I read commentaries that directed me to where Josephus said this. But Josephus, this Jewish historian back in the day, wrote that, uh, the, that the, the tradition was that Herod's robes that he would wear here were woven out of the silver thread. So when he sat upon his throne in the sunlight, he shined like an angel or a god, right? So Herod's putting on the show, and he's going to talk to the people, and apparently he's good at it. He's good with words. He's good with talking, teaching, preaching, whatever, right? And you guys know, you, you know the power of words. I mean, I hope you do, that words are powerful. People can write or speak in a way that can move people, motivate people. People's minds are changed. Their hearts can be stirred. You can move people to action. We tend to be drawn to people like that. We listen carefully And we wind up doing what the crowd does. When somebody's really good with words, what do we do? We lift them up. The words of a God, not of a man. We think that they're amazing. In fact, in the church, this happens a lot, where preachers will be elevated. Listen, here's the thing. We believe the preaching of the word should always be elevated, not the preacher of the word. Do not elevate me. Elevate the preaching of the word. Who's ever doing it? The preaching of God's word is precious to us. The preacher of the word, they are right. We elevate we, we, and we, we lift them up and we all we begin to associate them with the word. And so what they say almost is the word wherever they say it. It's dangerous. We are not immune to this. So it's happening here. They are lifting him up. But listen, pastors also don't just get lifted up onto these huge platforms where they're seen as like little popes. They have to be into it too. And Herod was definitely into his exaltation here. You know, he's, he's a man who is proud. He's exalting himself. Listen, he's, he's not even speaking on principle because we know from reading Acts already that he's not a man governed by principle or conviction. And even that doesn't guarantee that you're on the right page. But he's not. He makes choices politically. He does what he does to curry favor with people. So he's winsome and he's good with words and people are caught by this. They're like, this is amazing. And he is judged in verse 23. An angel of the Lord appears. God sends an angel down. Don't know why. Doesn't always have to do that. Maybe it always happens, but we're just finally reading about it. He sends an angel down and this 
man is struck down. Struck down here does not mean dead. That's like, might, might read that way when you think, oh, he's struck down. He's not dead yet, struck down, he's sick. He immediately experienced this divine judgment and he gets radically, desperately sick. A kind of sickness that is somehow manifested by what he describes as being eaten by worms. Now, you can read all the commentaries, the new ones, the critical ones. You can go back and read the old ones back in the day. And they all pretty much say, like, we don't know what happened other than he got really sick. And somehow, the description is he's got worms, whether this is open sores with maggots or whatever. But it is a repulsive, horrifying experience and anything to behold. It, more than likely, he would have smelled. If you've ever had open, an open wound on your body where you had to dress the wounds back and forth over a long period of time, you know that those things smell. This guy was reeking and had a horrible short life after this judgment until he died. All right, so why? Why is, uh, why is like the, the guy struck down dead? He dressed like Liberace and spoke real nice. Okay, so he made a big deal about himself. Okay. Is that really that big of a deal? Some people say, like, oh, no, no, it's because he, he went after Peter, and he arrested Peter, and he had James killed. That's why. Well, that's weird, because this is not God's MO. It's not what he normally does. Just consider Saul. Saul was a persecutor of the church, was having Christians persecuted and even killed, and God didn't do this to Saul. In fact, what he did to Saul was convert him. So why the judgment? What's the big deal? We got lots of proud preachers, lots of proud teachers, lots of people that make much about themselves. Why did he do this? We are told explicitly why God did this. He was struck down because he did not give God the glory. So we want to ask, okay, is that even fair though? Is it fair? He's going to get punished for not giving God the glory. Did he know that he was supposed to give God the glory? Did he even sign up to play the game of giving God the glory? Because a lot of people think this way, like, how are you going to hold somebody accountable for something that they don't believe in? How is God going to hold somebody accountable for not being a Christian when like, they don't believe that he even exists? Like, it doesn't seem fair to people that God would say, you have denied my glory, therefore judgment is coming. Is it fair? The answer is it's completely fair. We're going to show why in just a little bit. We'll come back to it. Herod judged, suffers. What's happening with the church in verses 24 and 25? We see that the church is growing, expanding, doing well. In verse 24, it says, the word of God increased and multiplied. So the word was being preached. Disciples are being made. Persecution seems to maybe ease up a little bit here. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. New guy that we're going to be learning more about. He and Paul kind of get into a little fight. We'll talk about it when we get to it later on. So this is the account. Herod, a persecutor of the church, is judged by the Lord and dies a gruesome death for not giving glory to God. And God's people, the church, is empowered to do the things that they've been called to do. What's the doctrine that we need to hold on to and what's the duty that we need to respond with? And it all revolves around this word glory. What does it mean to glorify God? What who are the people who actually do glorify God? So let's start with this principle. All things, all things created, whether you can see them or not, all things exist to glorify God. 
God is the creator of all that is, therefore all things belong to him. He made it all, he made it all for his own purpose, and that purpose is to bring him glory. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. So God, everything is, is, is from him and through him. He's the maker, he's the giver, he's the sustainer. And to him are all things. All things exist for his pleasure and for his glory. That's what we see in scripture. And we see it again and again. And when we say everything exists for God's glory, we mean everything, we mean every animal, every creature, every person, every human being, whether they believe in God or not, whether they believe in Christ or not, like whether they are morally upright and considered socially respectable or whether they are morally reprehensible and considered an outcast by society, everybody exists to glorify God. Even the unbelievers, even the unbelievers. Let me just give you another passage. I mean, this... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 makes this point, right? Where Peter is encouraging the church to live in such a way, to live such a good life that even unbelievers will see it and respond positively, right? It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's aim, his desire is to see even these unbelievers come to a place where they willingly glorify God. This is Peter's heart because this is God's heart. So how is it fair to, to say, well, their purpose in life is to glorify God when they, 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 it's, it's not their thing. They, they belong to a different belief group, a, a different sect. They're just not interested. How is it fair? It's fair because it all belongs to God. Everything and each of us belongs to God. This question, the scariest thing is not to know your purpose in life, to not know why you're here, resonated with me at such a young age because I asked those why questions. Why am I here? Why is there suffering? What's the point? I needed to know and nobody could tell me. Nobody could tell me. It wasn't until I met Christians who began to show me scripture that things began to fall into place. And I recognize it is absolutely fair because as it says in Ezekiel 18.4, God says, all souls are mine. All of them are mine. They belong to me. I made every single individual intentionally with great care. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We are all made in the image of God. So we belong to him regardless of how we feel about it. And he made us for his purposes. Psalm 82.8 says, the nations belong to God. Everything belongs to God. The cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. So yes, everything exists to glorify God. This is fair. This is natural. This is the way that it is. So even the unbeliever who has yet to understand how this is such a beautiful thing, their purpose is to glorify God. So this is true of everybody, but it is especially true. In a sense, it is doubly true of the Christian. It's doubly true of the Christian because we are not just called to glorify God by virtue of him being our creator. We are also called to glorify God because he is our redeemer. He made us, therefore he owns us. But then he saves us, and so we are, in that sense, doubly owned. In, in, in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verse 18. Paul is talking to this church in Corinth and he's trying to explain, like, listen, you guys have gotten loose on how to live. You're not, you're not living carefully. You're not living upright lives. And they were in particular struggling, not really struggling, they were just giving in to sexual temptations. And so he's explaining to them, like, listen, you, you, you've got to be careful not to fall into sexual immorality, right? But, but to learn how to, how to use your body in, in a proper way, in a righteous way. But here's what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This applies to much more than just this particular situation. You are not your own. Why not? I thought I was my own person. I thought I believed in human autonomy and free will. You belong to someone else. You were created by God, created for his purpose. And so your duty, your purpose in life is going to be oriented toward him. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Glorify him. We should probably define what this means. What does it mean to glorify God? We use that word a lot as Christians, right? Some Christians just say glory a lot. You know, some Christians, you know, I don't know if that really glorifies God. Let's, let's talk about it. I'll define it specifically enough to give us a direction to go. Glorifying God is to willingly honor and praise God as the one who is worthy of worship through faith and obedience. I'll say it again. Key word here is willingly. To glorify God is to willingly honor and praise him as the one or the only one worthy of worship through faith and obedience. All right, so we're talking about, I mean, all things in one way or another will wind up glorifying God, but what we're talking about here is a willing offering, right? To willingly, to choose to glorify God. And what are we doing? We are honoring him, we are praising him, as the one who is worthy of worship. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we honor and praise him? Well, it happens through faith and obedience. Fundamentally through faith and obedience. So you people say like, well, okay, so how does that work? Listen, the first time you actually wind up intentionally, willfully bringing glory to God is the moment that you believe in Christ. The moment that you believe, the moment that you are converted is the first time in your life where you step willingly into this place where God is now glorified in you. So, we believe, and it's not just that we believe in Jesus. That is a part of it, yes. I mean, it's, it's at the core of it. We believe in Christ, what Christ did, his life of righteousness, his, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the grave. We trust in Jesus so that our sins are forgiven and we're reconciled to God. But we're not just believing in Jesus. We are believing Jesus. We're not just believing in God. We're believing God because God has spoken he has given us his word. And so in other words, what we're doing is we're saying like, yes, God, I believe you. I receive your word. I depend upon it. Everything that is telling me about Jesus and myself, I wholeheartedly embrace. God is glorified in this because we are trusting him, not just trusting in him. And of course, faith gives way to obedience. God isn't pleased because your obedience is so sparkling. It's so clean and perfect. It's not. I've been watching. Your obedience is kind of lame. It looks like my obedience, if I'm being honest. 
Obedience can be good, it can be an example, but it's never perfect, right? It's never perfect. We always fall short in one way or another, but yet our obedience can still please God when it stems from faith, because without faith it is impossible to please God. God rejoices in our good works. They are perfected by Christ. They are made pure by him. We glorify God by faith and repentance. And now listen, some of us will look at that and go, okay, so by faith and repentance, it sounds like whenever I'm specifically doing Christian things or religious things, then I'm glorifying God. And the rest of the time, I'm just kind of coasting. Am I not glorifying God then? And this is the wrong way to think about it. Yes, we, you, could, you could think of it in terms of like, okay, uh, I, I know the good thing that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do that thing, and I do it in faith, and okay, I've glorified God. And you think about it in terms of like, oh, I'm going I'm to help my neighbor who, who is really in need. Maybe you can put it in like a concrete, almost religious context. Or you think like, oh, that, this person who's, uh, who's really offended me, I really want to swear at them really, really bad, and I hope somebody does, but it won't be me because I want to be the bigger person, and so I'm going to hold my tongue, and I'm not going to be quick to speak, even though your heart has gone a little haywire there, and I've been there, I understand. Um, you're thinking, like, okay, there's a win. I've held my tongue. Glorifying God by faith and repentance is something that we can do and should be doing in every single aspect of our lives, small and large. To glorify God by faith and repentance isn't necessarily Christianizing every single thing that we do with Bible verses and Puritan prayers. It's living the life that God has for us with an awareness that we are living it before his face and that how we conduct ourselves here as it relates to receiving his providential care, as, as it relates to how we treat other people, how we use the gifts he gives us, all of this glorifies God if we do that in faith, with gratitude, thankfulness, sincerity in our hearts. You can glorify God in all you do. First Corinthians 10, 31, people go there a lot. Whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So how does that work? How do you glorify God in these other areas? Like work. You can glorify God at work, but, um, but it's like a secular job, right? Exactly. You can glorify God there. Well, how? In your recreation, in your hobbies, in your friendships, in your family, when days are easy, when days are hard, when you're experiencing loss or you're suffering or you're incredibly blessed with a lot of provision, you can glorify God in all of these situations. How? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I'll tell you how. Charles Spurgeon, um, if... If you know Charles Spurgeon, you probably like Charles Spurgeon. I, don't, I haven't met anybody who knows about Charles Spurgeon who doesn't like him. Charles Spurgeon was a very large, bearded Baptist pastor in London in uh, 19th century and considered to be one of the most amazing preachers of his day, not just because he was good with words, uh, which he was, not just because he was incredible with illustrations, which he was, but because he preached in a way that was considered vulgar. Uh, he preached in a way that connected with people. He spoke to people in a language they understood. Fantastic preacher. By the way, one of the few Baptist guys uh, that was uh, really against slavery. In fact, uh, that's why a lot of people in America didn't like him so much. Anywho, so Spurgeon... 
big time pastor, big deal back in the day. Big people, thousands of people crowded to hear him preach. And he had a buddy of his come to his church one time and preach for him. And so this guy, Pentecost, Dwight Pentecost, he's up there and he's preaching away. And Dwight begins to share his testimony about how he gave up tobacco because, uh, you know, he, was, he felt like he was enslaved by it and he was dishonoring to God. It was gross. So he repented. And then he goes on this whole tear about you should give up cigars. Cigars are terrible. Cigars are awful. The problem is, it's like everybody knew that Spurgeon was a cigar smoker. It wasn't a secret. He was regular. He had a morning cigar, evening cigar. Morning and evening. That's probably why it's called. Anyway, point is, he, he did his cigar thing and... Uh, did it with a clear conscience. So now he's at the church where he pastors. This guy just gets up there and blasts away at cigar smoking. What is Spurgeon going to do? He doesn't want to light this guy up and make him look silly, but he can't just let it stand because he doesn't want his people to be confused. So he goes up and he addresses the matter. And he addresses it, I believe, because he knows that his people know the situation and that what they actually already believe is being challenged. So Spurgeon gets up there and he says, I intend to go home tonight and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. He said a little bit more. And the reason he said it was because it is true. He wasn't being cute or clever. He's, he's saying, listen, I'm going to enjoy this gift, this earthly, worldly gift, and I will glorify God in doing so. This actually became a big deal. Newspapers started talking about it, and he had to write this letter about explaining it, you know, which he did, you know, explained it. He says, like, listen, if you can show me one verse in the Bible that suggests that this is sin, I'm out. I'll stop doing it, but it's not there. And he's, of course, right. How do you glorify God by enjoying a good cup of coffee? How can you enjoy God by enjoying a, a, a walk with your family or by taking a nap? Can you glorify God by taking a nap? You see, you can glorify God in doing these things, but you can also sin in doing these things. You can do both. Right? You, can, you can do things for wrong reasons and wrong motives. You glorify God in all of the things you do, and most of your day is made up of smaller things, right, that all kind of compile together. You can do them if you do those things with an awareness. I do this before the face of God. The work that I do, I work as if I am working for the Lord, not just my employer. I am going to be fair in my dealings with others. I'm going to be generous where I can. I'm going to be patient with those that are weak or silly or foolish. Faith and obedience characterizes the whole of our lives. So we are glorifying God when we live Christianly. It doesn't mean that you're consciously always thinking about everything that you do. Like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to set apart, you know, every spoonful of sugar that's going to go into your coffee with a prayer to make sure that it's, you're going to glorify God in it. But if you enjoy good gifts with thankfulness in your heart, recognizing that they come from God, you don't abuse them or misuse them, you're glorifying God. We glorify God in all things. Now, this can sound like drudgery to some, especially if they don't know Jesus yet, because like, they're like, oh my gosh, I just want to enjoy things. Why do I have to enjoy things for Jesus? Why do I have to, why do I have to glorify God? I mean, I just, want to, I just want to do the things I like to do. It sounds like drudgery because we don't understand that there is a connection between glorifying God and enjoying God. The person who glorifies God is the person who enjoys God. And let me promise you, enjoying God is something that highlights and intensifies your enjoyment of any worldly thing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 
the Presbyterian Shorter Catechism begins with question number one, what is man's chief end? The question is basically, what is the purpose for all human beings? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's one thing made up of two parts, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose, to glorify God, to honor him and praise him willingly through faith and obedience in all of life. Okay, so, but to enjoy God? See, to glorify God is to derive joy and satisfaction from him. See, the, that's why it's the scariest thing. The scariest thing is to not know your place in the world, to not know why you're here. Because when you know, you derive joy and a sense of purpose and satisfaction from that thing, from that reason. And when it's God, it is everything. And you can't read through the scriptures without seeing that the joy of the Lord is tied inherently to faith and obedience and a life lived for him. Let me just read you a a couple. Psalm 37 verse 4. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your hearts. Or Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Or Psalm 33, 1, shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Praise befits the upright. It sounds weird to a lot of us because a lot of us aren't very happy. Why are you unhappy? If we're, we're supposed to be the happiest people on the planet, not in a worldly sense, not happiness derived from success, which is fine. I mean, a kind of spiritual joy that transcends circumstances. We should be the most joyful people that anyone encounters. There's a time for mourning. There's a time for laughter. There's a time for rejoicing, right? There's a time for everything. But on the whole, we're supposed to be the people filled with joy. Are we? Or are we complainers and grumblers? And if we are, if we're sour, why? It's because, in my estimation, in that moment, we probably aren't interested in glorifying God. I complain a lot. I'm a complainer. Shut up. That's my sister. I can tell her to shut up. Shut up, Michelle. I'm a complainer. Michelle's a complainer, too. That's a family thing. We're complainers. And my complaining is like, there's no dimmer. You can't like turn it down. It's either on or it's off. And it broke on years ago. And I don't know how to turn it off. It's just, it's complaining. It's a sin problem. It's not, it's not good. I'm not, actually, I'm not excusing it. And I'm sometimes, oftentimes God's showing me like, wow, look at you complaining about something so stupid, so frivolous. It's, you're letting it occupy your mind and change your attitude right now. Like, why am I doing that? Why am I complaining in that moment? Where has my joy gone? Why have I allowed this silly thing to steal my joy? It's because in that moment, I am not glorifying God. I am making a little silver robe for myself so that I can make myself the most important person in the room, or at least in my head. Well, this is our purpose. Every person's purpose, your purpose, whether you believe in Jesus or not, your purpose is to glorify God. It is the answer. It is the answer to all of the questions. It all comes back to that. You have been wonderfully created to glorify and enjoy God in whatever vocation, recreation, relationship you find yourself in. You are called to glorify and enjoy God. Here's the problem. The real problem is that nobody does it. We don't glorify God, do we? We're called to do it. We've all blown it. 
All of us fall short, right? Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of what? Of the glory of God. Okay, so awesome. So there's my purpose in life. Glorify God. I've fallen short of it. I can't even do the thing. I finally know what I'm supposed to do and now I'm not able to do it. How does that work? Doesn't that mean I'm no better off than Herod? But here's the good news. The good news is something you've been hearing throughout this whole service. The good news is that Jesus is our savior and our substitute. That's the good news. Yes, he died on the cross and his shed blood has obtained for us the forgiveness of our sins. But we also receive the benefit, the blessing, the gift of his life, his life of obedience and his righteousness is given to us. It was mentioned by Jennifer when she was up here doing the offering. It was mentioned in the songs that we sing. Jesus' righteousness is given to us. What did Jesus do? Jesus glorified God the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verses three and four. Listen to what Jesus says. This is eternal life. He's praying to the Father. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That is the good news. Jesus did that for us. In Jesus, we do glorify God. God is glorified in us because of our union, our connection to Jesus. And now as a people who have been cleansed, forgiven, declared righteous, when we do strive to glorify God in our lives, when we strive to willingly honor and praise God in all that we do, it is beautiful and acceptable to him. We are glorifying him, not because it's perfect, because Jesus has made it so. It stems from faith, which means it is sincere. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. With faith, we are the friends of God. So in Christ, yes, we are forgiven and accepted, and our purpose is unlocked. It's unlocked. So wherever you are in your life, you can know, listen, you may not know what decision to make in the immediacy, Sometimes we just don't know what to do, but you know what your purpose is. Whatever decision you make, whatever path you take, you know, like my, my calling here is to honor God, to praise God, to reflect his worthiness in all that I'm doing, to not just show the world that I'm his, but that he is worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We ask that you would continue to teach us today as we consider your word and sing these songs. Lord, would you um, convict us wherever necessary, lead us to repent by your spirit, but encourage us, Lord, lift our heads, give us hope and joy and excitement in the life that you set before us because we know that in this life, we have a purpose that cannot be taken away and a purpose that we can fulfill by your grace and that is to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.